Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Susan Spungen, and I'm here to talk about my latest cookbook, Open Kitchen. So here in New York City, we just ended week two of the coronavirus quarantine. In Open Kitchen, you have some recipes scattered throughout the cookbook that you call projects. Mm -hmm. Since many of us have lots of time on our hands right now, I thought you could walk us through your French beef stew recipe on page 101. And I Mm -hmm. bet we have these ingredients on hand. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I've been definitely stocking up on the basic mirepoix vegetables, which is uh, onion, carrot, celery, because I want to be ready to make soups and stews at a moment's notice. And I've been actually buying mushrooms, too. So even if you can't get like fancy hen of the woods mushrooms from your farmer's market right now or anywhere else, any kind of mushrooms are great in the stew. And you just need to get your hands on a nice big chuck roast and you're ready to go to make this really comforting stew that even if you're not going to be serving it to guests, you can share it with your family and you could also divvy it up and freeze some for later, which is what I've been doing a lot of that uh, batch cooking lately. So I started making this this morning, and I don't have pearl onions. White onions are okay? Look, you can always make substitutions, especially like this. It has to have that onion flavor in it. But if you don't have pearl onions or can't even get a bag of frozen pearl onions, then just chop up a white onion and and put that in in the beginning. Could I use stew meat too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could definitely. I mean, I wrote the recipe to cook the meat in larger pieces, like if you got one big chuck roast. But if you buy stew meat, that's the same cut of meat, just cut in smaller pieces. So either one is fine. A big roast or cut into, I think, four pieces. I have it in the in the recipe. Um, um, Or you can just use stew meat. I just love the reason I did it with a big chuck roast in in bigger pieces is because I just found the the final product to be sort of moister and juicier while you still got the flavor into the sauce from searing three or four bigger pieces of meat. And then you kind of pull them apart at the end and you can the sauce sort of bathes all of those um, wonderful craggy surface areas with delicious um, sauce. But if you can just get stew meat, that works perfectly well too. Because when you cook it for two and a half, three hours, it'll get tender no matter what. So talk a little bit about the demi-gloss concentrate. Ah, yeah. That's something I always have in my kitchen. And I think it came from, you know, working uh, at one point in my career with a couple of classically trained chefs. And we, you know, I learned how to actually make demi-gloss from from scratch and giant uh, kettles full. And it's just a really invaluable ingredient, I think, for making flavorful sauces. And, uh, you know, there's so many things you can do without that, making a quick pan sauce, whatever. But demi-glace is when you've cooked down veal and beef bones for uh, many, many hours, strained it, reduce it again. So it's it's rather labor intensive, although it could be a once a year project for anybody that likes doing those kind of things. Um, you can get some really good high quality uh, demi-gloss concentrates. And it's like a very hard jelly because that is from all the collagen from the bones. And it really adds a, a big spoonful of that in something like the French beef stew. It just adds so much uh, richness and flavor that would be hard to get otherwise because like a canned beef stock or a box beef stock, 
you might as well not even, in my opinion, it's just like salt water. It doesn't really have a lot of flavor and it's mostly salt. So I, I tend to avoid, um, beef stock in a, in a box. So just quickly going down the ingredients, I think everyone has these in their kitchen. It's beef, butter, olive oil, garlic. Yeah. Um, red wine, beef stock, bay leaves. Yeah. So easy. So you've had a lot of practice making this dish, both in your real life and professional life. Can you tell us the story behind the recipe? Well, I have had a lot of practice uh, with Boeuf Bourguignon, which this is loosely based on the, the classic French recipe. Uh, I worked on a m- little movie called Julie and Julia. And um, this was the recipe that we cooked the most throughout the three months that I worked on Julie and Julia. It just came up again and again and again in different scenes. And it was just to me, it's, you know, this, the quintessential Julia Child dish. And it's so delicious and so good that, I mean, I didn't mind making it over and over again. And it's, and so I've sort of tweaked it and perfected it and made it my own by kind of making the vegetable, it's a little more vegetable heavy than the classic. Um, I've added, I roast the vegetables on the side and throw them into the sauce at the end, rather than stewing them along with the meat the whole time, because I really like, uh, it makes it a little more vegetable forward. I found when I eat this dish, I like the sauce and I like the vegetables. I don't really need to eat a lot of the meat. Um, and I'm not like a, a huge meat eater, so I like it, but I don't want to eat like a big, big portion of it. So that's why I've sort of tried to balance out the meat with a little more vegetable. Did you ever meet Julia Child? I did. I did. Um, I uh, back in my Martha Stewart living days, I got to, when she was working on a book and, and companion TV series called Baking with Julia. Uh, Martha Stewart was one of the people that you know she had come up to Cambridge along with lots of other different pastry chefs from all over the country on different days. Our our day came and. And we, you know, of course, being the food editor, I was the one down in the basement making the wedding cake and Martha was on TV talking about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, it was a great experience. And of course, now to to say that, you know, I've been in that kitchen that's now preserved in amber in the Smithsonian. Um, it's, it's kind of cool. Like I had a, a real experience there with Julia and our shoot went over two days. So she actually cooked us dinner in her kitchen that, I mean, yes, in her kitchen, we ate out on her patio. It was summertime the night that we stayed over in Cambridge. And then we went back and filmed the second day. And that was pretty cool. And I, I had met her at a couple of different events. Um, I actually went to her 80th birthday celebration, which was a big deal at the Rainbow Room. That was when I had first started working at Martha Stewart Living. And then later we did this, about 10 years later, we did this book project with her. And and then I met her a couple other times, too, at the IACP Awards. I remember seeing her as I, I got an award for the um, Martha Stewart's hors d'oeuvres handbook, which I which I was the co-author of. And on my way up to the stage to accept the award, she said, should I do my imitation? She said, it's a wonderful book. She said, I got it at Costco. <laughs> <laughs> Were those awards the year that they had them in um, San Antonio? 
No, uh, you know, I don't remember, but I've never been to San Antonio, so it wasn't there. I can't remember which city it was. It might have been Portland. I'd have to look. I think it was 1999 that that we won that award. So I'd have I'd have to go back and do research to know where which city it was in. But it was not San Antonio because I think the year before I went to the IACP Awards in San Antonio, and she was there and. Every, the room just stopped. When she walked in, everyone was like, oh, my God, Julia's here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think she was one of the founders of IACP. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So she used to go every year. And, and then I saw her out here once um, in the Hamptons for the James Beard Award. So I think those were all the times that I had met her. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. So on your Instagram, you wrote yes. some good things. I'm achieving my goal of eating dinner earlier, and it's getting lighter (laughs) later by the day. It's Mm. hard not to find oneself happy to feel spring coming, despite Mm. this world we're living in right now. Mm. Cooking is truly getting me through all of this. The the truth is I've been having, um, I've really been enjoying cooking. Uh, I always enjoy cooking. That's, That's why I've made it my my career, but I have been fine. I think a lot of people have who cook already, especially have been finding a lot of solace in, in cooking right now. And, and, and it's just the act of cooking. It's not about cooking for others, although it, it probably is about cooking for whoever's in your household. But I'm, I know there are people who are quarantining alone who are enjoying cooking too, but I just find that I've been, I've had a few strategies that have kind of, um, been getting me through and, you know, which is really just about cooking more than you need for any one particular meal. Like I've been cooking a big pot of beans and then I'll make a soup with some of the brothy beans that are there and, and maybe a chili or maybe just rice and beans or incorporate the beans into a salad, or I might freeze some of them. So I've just been, you know, I'll cook like more grain than I need, like frike and and then I'm really trying hard not to let anything go bad. And so we've had some planned dinners and then and then we have then we find ourselves with a surplus of already prepared ingredients. So we do what we call scrounging, where we just put together meals based on what's in the fridge. <laughs> My husband and I sometimes just eat different things. It's like, oh, let's scrounge and we each kind of make our own <laughs> thing. <laughs> so we, you know, we have we're not going hungry, that's for sure. And um, definitely eating less meat than than I normally do, even though we have meat. Tonight we're having fish. You know, we're we're here in Long Island, and the fish market was full of wonderful fresh fish. So um, that sort of seems like a treat right now. And we're they had gorgeous, gorgeous halibut from Nova Scotia today. So that's what we're having for dinner. I thank you for your cooking inspiration, and take <laughs> good care. Thank you. You too. Cooking makes you happy, and it's a way you can make other people happy, but you didn't start out cooking. You first started out as an art student, then you moved on to become the dessert chef at Coco Pazzo on the Upper East Side, then founding food editor of Martha Stewart Living, and I can't leave out culinary consultant on numerous movies, including Julie and Julia and Eat, Pray, Love. You've been called the queen of food. This cookbook (laughs) is called Open Kitchen. What does Open Kitchen mean to you? Well, you know, when I was coming up with what's the sort of uh, hook for this book, uh, after, you know, going through a few different ideas, I sort of settled on this concept of an open kitchen. I love 
the sort of double meaning of that phrase. Um, I had just finished renovating a, 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 or I should say building a new kitchen in a new re- newly renovated home. And of course we wanted a big, beautiful, open kitchen. And you know, one of the, I never really even had a very good kitchen before. So I really started entertaining in earnest when I had this home entertaining more and in a more sort of grown up way. And, you know, I realized that when you have this kind of open kitchen space and your friends are literally walking right into it and most likely hanging out there while you're getting ready to eat dinner or lunch or whatever it may be, uh, you know, they can kind of see everything you've been doing and working on. And uh, it made me want to get ahead even more than I already kind of naturally did. And when I say get ahead, I mean, it's really about prepping and being ready. And if there's something I can do a day ahead, I'm going to do it. If I can do it two days ahead, I'm going to do it. So it just makes the, the sort of streamlines the cooking of the meal and and also lessens the mess in the kitchen that everyone's going to walk into. And then the other side of that meaning is, uh, you know, just what, having it be a place to welcome friends and family and guests into your home and sort of wrap them up in like nurturing food. So and it's, you know, an open kitchen in that sense as well. And this whole cookbook is all about your get ahead cooking philosophy. It is. So in the introduction, you wrote, a few years ago, I came across the word sprezzatura. Yeah, that's I'm, perfect. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote, not only did I love the way it sounded, I was intrigued by its translation, which simply put means studied nonchalance. What is it about that word that caught your attention? Well, like I said, I just love the way it sounded. But when I heard what it meant, I thought that's exactly what I strive for when I cook. Um, you know, I don't want things that that seem fussy, but at the same time, I am willing to put some work in. And I think you have to be willing to put a little bit of work in when you want to make good food. I mean, let's face it, you have to shop, you have to plan your menu, you have to you know, cook the food and pay some attention to how you're doing that. So you know, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I wanted to feel nonchalant, even if I make something like super delicious, maybe it's an amazing dessert that I spent a little bit of time making. It's just sitting there on the counter, you know, during dinner and people are kind of can't, you know, their mouths are watering, waiting for it, but they didn't see me like executing that. So it just feels very nonchalant. What can I say? I really, I wanted to always feel nonchalant. And I also don't want my guests to feel put upon. That's why I want to be like kind of done in the kitchen. You'll never find people saying to me, can I help? Are you sure you don't need help? I think people only say that when they see you struggling. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Because I'm always like, oh, she needs help. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So you hear about chefs and you hear about home cooks, but this is a new one for me, professional home cook. Right. What right, sets right. the professional home cook apart from the ordinary cook, which is what yeah. I am? Right. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because so for years, you know, I worked in restaurants, I worked in catering, I still work as a food stylist and a recipe developer, but as a recipe developer, I actually do work at home. Um, so so I have the skills of a professional, but I have the sort of mindset of a home cook. Um, so I guess it's just like maybe sort of kicking it up a notch. I create recipes for home cooks. So, but I'm doing it 
from a professional's point of view. So I really have to get inside the head of a home cook and, and realize like kind of what their limitations are. But also I want people to have something to aspire to. And like I said, I am right on the cover. I want people to be inspired. And that's what I keep hearing from people over and over again about this book, how they feel inspired. And of course that is so gratifying. I'm so happy to hear because that's what I want to do. I'm not about like solving your everyday problems. Um, I'm about making you want to really like spread your wings and fly. Can you talk a little bit about how the book is organized? So I start with simple starters and they are, as I say, simple. Um, they're, you know, really, really kind of, uh, you know, easy kind of low effort things that you can put out for people to nibble on uh, while, and then we are, we call them nibbles in our house. I mean, some of them are make ahead, like the Duca Grissini, uh, you know, I actually have this Duca, which is a spice and nut and seed blend on hand from another recipe. And I thought, wow, that would be so good in Grissini, which are those skinny, um, breadsticks. And that's a wonderful recipe that requires making ahead, but there are other things that are super spontaneous, like, um, uh, grilled peas in the pod and amame style. You could buy a quart of English peas. The season is coming up really soon. Uh, I'm too lazy to shell peas myself. So I just throw them on the grill in one of those grill baskets and char them and the peas inside don't need much cooking. And then people can just nibble on them. They just have a little olive oil and, and lemon zest and flaky salt on top. Uh, or there's a beautiful avocado tahini dip, which I put out with all kinds of, uh, you know, raw or slightly pickled vegetables. I think you get the idea that simple starters. And then I break the centerpieces, which I think is something you should actually start with when you're planning a menu. What's the main event of the meal? And we have, I have centerpieces that are meat, uh, poultry, fish and shellfish, and then vegetarian or nearly, because I, I don't like to leave out my vegetarian friends and my vegetarian readers, because I know there are a lot of them. And I myself eat vegetarian part of the time because I enjoy it. The whole book is very vegetable forward. So the nearly vegetarian chapter might have a little thing you can remove, like a, a little bit of pancetta for flavor. Still going to be great without it. And then I have salads, which which I think of are as sort of side dishes because I, I like to have a lot of room temperature things uh, when I do a menu because it's not it doesn't really matter if things are hot. So I love a salad as a side dish. And then I have a vegetable chapter, a starchy side chapter, and then a really big and robust dessert chapter. So some Saturdays I wake up and think, all I want to do is spend the day in the kitchen cooking and listening to NPR. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your project recipes that are sprinkled mm. throughout the cookbook. Mm. I like to warn people. I don't want people to think, wow, that is really a lot of work. I wasn't expecting that. So I wanted to label them as projects. And also people, like you said, they sometimes want to embrace a project. And I would say that all in all, the projects are things that are you know, really great things that can be made almost completely ahead. It just sort of breaks down that way. A lot of things that are easy are more like last minute things, but a lot of the things that are projects are things that you can make a couple days ahead of time and then serve the last minute, like the French beef stew, which I just saw someone making the other day and they loved it. 
Asabuko Sugo with orange gremolata. This is one of my absolute favorite things to make ahead. You know, it's a braise, so it takes a good couple hours and it has uh, veal asabuco. You could use beef shanks if you didn't want to use veal. And it's makes the most delightful pasta sauce. You can make this completely ahead of time. All you have to do is boil the pasta and make the gremolata at the last minute. The vegetable lasagna that I mentioned before is another project, but I think there's about five or six throughout the book and they're all centerpieces. You approach cooking with an artist's sensibility, layering flavors, textures, and colors. And one section of this cookbook that might be the definition of that is your toast section, like your cassoulet toast recipe. Mm -hmm. Can you describe this? Well, I I really, from the very beginning, I wanted to have this specific toast section and I wanted it laid out the way that you see it, like on a double page spread so that you could see the, be inspired by the array of things that you could do. And you may, depending on how good a cook you are, you might not need a recipe for some of these. And they also might inspire recipes of your own. The cassoulet toast, I'd say, is one of the more complex of the toast because you actually have to cook something. And when I first approached the book, I wanted to do a cassoulet recipe because I thought, oh, that's such a great make ahead, wonderful winter dish. And then I realized, you know, there is just no way to really streamline a cassoulet uh, without really compromising on what it is. So I, I just sort of thought, what if I took the flavors of cassoulet and made them into a, a delicious, hearty toast? It's just like you have to caramelize onions. That's like the most complex part of it. And then you take can of big butter beans and and then you buy a leg of a duck confit leg at the supermarket which if you look for it it's usually there with the bacon d'artagnan makes a great one and there's a couple other ones and so it's almost like a real shortcut to the very delicious flavors of cassoulet and you could serve this actually as a lunch with a green salad it would be fantastic In your go-to pantry list on page 14, you included preserved lemons. I bought my first jar of preserved lemons a few weeks ago. Okay. So what is your favorite way to use preserved lemons in a dish? Yeah. Well, I think I also mentioned that I love preserved lemon paste, which I think is even easier. Now, what you have to remember is that preserved lemons are preserved with salt. So what you're getting is you actually only use the rind. If you're getting a jar of whole preserved lemons, you don't actually use the pulp. Just scrape out the pulp, which is like very almost non-existent by the time they're preserved. The pith part has been salted and it takes like three months to make them. That's why I don't make them myself. I buy them. <laughs> and they have a very strong flavor, a little bit like Indian lime pickle, if you've ever had that as yeah. a condiment, uh, kind of similar. So it's quite strong. You don't need a lot. And you should always hold back on salting other parts of the dish until you've put them in because they contribute a lot of salt. So I like putting them into um, dressings and vinaigrettes. I love just a little bit of that preserved lemon paste in a like maybe a vinaigrette that you might put over fish because I love fish with something really zingy, super zingy, salty, absolutely delicious. Over the weekend, I made your recipe for clams with chorizo and smoked paprika on page 155. Can you describe this recipe? Sure. And thank you for giving me page numbers. <laughs> Very helpful. I think I might have seen that on Instagram. Yep. Did you post? Yeah. Yes. 
you know, clams are something that people might sort of walk past in the supermarket or the fish store and don't underestimate them because when you cook clams, they release this incredibly powerful, flavorful broth that is, you know, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of white wine and some uh, clams and you have a flavor bomb. So yeah, I cook this on the stove, but I have also done the same thing on a gas grill or a live fire grill. If you have a big cast iron pan, you could cook these outside on your grill. These are kind of Portuguese flavors, really, um, mixing the idea of a spicy sausage like chorizo with clams. That's a very Spanish and Portuguese kind of flavor combo. And how many ingredients do we have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight. Eight ingredients, quite a short list, some cherry tomatoes. They help delicious, break it down into a delicious sauce, and then just grill or toast some yummy bread. And you have a great meal that you can stick in the middle of the table and have like a, a messy feast with a couple of friends. And you can dip your bread in that oh, broth. So oh. good. Or let me give you another idea, another way to serve this. Put a big piece of bread in four bowls and then spoon this over and let people eat the clams and then eat that soaked bread. Delicious. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Now for my segment called my favorite cookbook. Uh, Aside from this cookbook, what is your all time favorite cookbook Uh and why? Well, lately I've been thinking about some of the books that I've kept over the years and I don't know if it's definitely my only all-time favorite, but a book that had a big influence on me early in my career was a book called Cucina Fresca, written by Evan Kleinman, who's now on the radio, and Diana Laplace. I love her. Yeah, and they they had a series of books, but Cucina Fresca was the first. And it was kind of a revelation to me at the time because the recipes were so straightforward and simple, and they were really based on mostly like kind of Tuscan ideas. And that's like a sensibility that really appeals to me where kind of less is more and true like farm-to-table cooking. And it just always inspired me. Um, it, it, taught, it sort of taught me how to be simple. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Well, my website is my name. So just type in susanspungen.com or just susanspungen. It should come right up. And that's S-P-U-N-G-E-N. I'm used to always spelling my name because it's a little hard to figure out. And on social media, same thing, at Susan Spungen on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything. Thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks for having me. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.